Throughout history, worship music has played a huge part in the lives of God's people. Tony um, Merida, in his volume on the book of Exodus, wrote these words. He said, songs help us remember. Songs are portable theology. Now think about that. Songs are a way for God's people to remember the truth about God. It's truth that's revealed in Scripture. And, and great songs have been written that reflect truth. It's portable theology because it gets passed from generation to generation. Not everybody has had access to the Bible, but they can remember songs. And really important truth has been passed from one generation to another. Today we come to the first recorded worship song in the Bible. It was recorded by Moses and it was produced in the wilderness. The distribution of the song is very amazing. According to statisticsbrain.com, if you haven't been there, you should go there. We have a quote here, statisticsbrain.com, 6 billion, 1 million, 500,000 copies of the first recorded worship song. What do you think about that? It's because there are 6 billion copies of the Bible that have been distributed. And I bet you don't even know this song by heart. Um, The song was written sometime around 1446 B.C. God has just led Israel out of Egypt, where they had been in slavery for over 400 years. God put on a marvelous display of power against Egypt and the gods of Egypt in orchestrating ten miraculous plagues. And Pharaoh was moved to release God's people from captivity. Then God led them into the desert. It was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians followed Israel until they appeared trapped against the Red Sea. But the word for Red Sea is Yom Suf, which means Sea of Reeds. And with a huge display of power, God parted the water and the people of Israel, 600,000 men plus their families, so we're looking at two to three million people, walked through the sea on dry ground to safety. And of course, the Egyptian army followed in pursuit. And when the entire army entered into the sea, the sea collapsed on them and the entire army drowned. This song was written in response to these events about God's glorious actions in saving his people. So let's ask this question. As we're gonna, this is kind of like a different kind of literature. We've been coming along in narrative, in historical in the book of Exodus, reading the, the events as they happened. And now we come to a song. It's a psalm. It's in a poet, poetic uh, style, poetry. And it's not normal for all of us. I don't talk in poetic language. Um, I get a little uncomfortable with poetic language sometimes. What can we learn from this worship song? So first of all, worship is our response to God's work in our lives. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1. So open your text, get to chapter 15 of verse 1. Open your smartphone. 
This was Moses' response to God. And you can follow along on your outline in your program. This was Moses' response to God after God delivered his people from the Egyptians. Here we go, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horses and driver. He has hurled into the sea. So God's people respond to God in an overjoy, uh, overjoyed kind of way. They're focusing on the work of God on their behalf, and they're just amazed, and they appreciate it so much. And they sort of just break out in singing, led by Moses. Uh, and then again, this is, this is uh, poetry, and, and artistic writers often use poetry to express uh, things in a, in a very uh, attention-getting kind of way, bringing focus to their subject. And here's the key idea I want us to get. This is about revelation and response. This is what worship is about, revelation and response. God speaks, God acts, and his people respond. And the response should be an act of worship. Think about worship is Revelation and response. Uh, I want to give you a little definition. You've seen this definition before, but I like it so well. I'm going to give it to you again. Worship is an active response to God, whereby we declare his worth. This is uh, from a book that I've appreciated on worship, Discovering the Missing Jewel, Ronald Allen. Worship is an active response to God. It's about engaging our minds, our thoughts, the focus of our life, our energy, our body to respond to God. It's an active response. It's to God. It's not to um, the pipe organ or the band. It's to God. And whereby we declare His worth. It's about focusing on God. It's about thinking about his value. We declare his worth. How valuable is God, the infinite holy God? How valuable is he? Well, it's really about how valuable is he to you. And worship is responding back with the value you have for him. And the more you know him, the better you know him, the more you're going to be able to respond in worship and appreciation and love greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Love, loving God, and worship is the central idea of loving God. Uh, one of the amazing things uh, today is God is searching for worshipers today. God is searching for worshipers today. In fact, I would argue that's why we exist as a church, because God is searching for worshipers today. The passage that reminds us of this is John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And uh, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, in this discussion he has. He says, yet a time is coming that has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Present tense. He is seeking worshipers right now. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. The Father is seeking worshipers. And there's a major change is coming in this uh, event right here. Uh, at this particular time, 
Worship is in, centered in Jerusalem at the temple, and there was an animal sacrificial system. Jesus is going to go to the cross and die, pay the penalty for the sin of the world, and the whole system is really going to be completed then fulfilled and disappear. And worship is not going to be about going to Jerusalem and sacrificing animals. It's going to be about focusing on Jesus. Verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And one of the things that Jesus is referring to here is that there's going to, there needs to be a spiritual connection with God if there's going to be true worship. It isn't about religion. It isn't about just going through the motions. It isn't about uh, going to a building and st- standing with a group of people and reciting things and saying things and singing things in the name of religion and, and religion and hope that you're going to be better off because you were there. It's about a real connection with God, and it's a spiritual one, and it's called bo- being born again, being born of the Spirit. A connection with the Holy Spirit. If you tr- put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and you are given that connection by faith. And you, can, you become a true worshiper at that point. But it's, not, it's worship in spirit and in truth. And it's about worshiping God in truth, according to the scriptures, according to the way God has revealed that he desires to have worship. It isn't just the way that we imagine we would like God, we think would be a nice way to do it. It needs to be fitting with what scripture says, truthful according to what God has said. Uh, Matthew 5.16 is another passage that uh, points this direction. Jesus said to his disciples in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And he's really, this is kind of a capsule of a a lot of uh, a lifetime worth of stuff right here. Uh, Let your light shine. Let your life shine brightly with spiritual light by the way you live, which includes doing good works so that the world you live in, your neighbors may see God at work in you. And you know what? They're going to be attracted to God, and they're going to want to know God, and and it's going to be so moving in their life. They're going to become true followers of Jesus, and they're going to become worshipers. That's what it means that they're going to glorify the Father in heaven. Somebody has to tell them who Jesus is if they're going to glorify the Father in heaven. And glorifying the Father is about worshiping God. Um, Secondly, worship is personal because God is personal. Verse 2 The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. It's about worship is personal. And it's about having a personal relationship with God. And that's a question that I would ask you. Do you have a personal relationship with God? So that you can say God is your God, or is it just the God Or maybe you're in process, maybe you're in discovery, maybe you'd like to know more, or maybe you're not sure. If that's true, you're you're in the right place. Thank you for being here. Um, But worship is about a personal relationship. God is personal, and our relationship to him is personal. The Lord is my strength, Moses says. Moses knows this from personal experience, God's strength God's power in his life has made all the difference. It is God's strength that delivered the Israelites. In fact, God delivered each of the Israelites, not just the nation of people, but each one individually. 
What is the appropriate response back? It's worship. It's thank you, God, for saving me. Not just the nation, not just my neighbor, saving me. That makes it personal. Uh, the Lord is my song. This is, the, Moses says, this is the focus of his singing. Uh, the Lord is on his mind and in his thoughts. He says, the Lord is my salvation. He recognizes that God saved him. And uh, the people did not save themselves. It is God who is his salvation, provided his salvation, is the reason he has salvation. He says, the Lord is my God. It's, you know, it's personal. he's, He's made this, he's pursued this relationship. He wants this relationship Uh, He's embraced this relationship by faith. The Lord is my God, and the Lord is my Father's God. And Moses makes a reference probably to his father, but he means way more than that because his father is tied to Abraham, the one whom God made a covenant with. And and Moses is tied to uh, the promises of Abraham through his own father, Abraham was the father or the patriarch of Israel. The Lord is my father's God. Okay, worship is personal because God is personal. Thirdly, worship focuses on who God is. Verses 3 through 18. This is a longer section. So now we're going to focus on who God is. And what you, the way you behave and the way you respond to God depends a whole lot on what you know about him. Um, First of all, uh, Moses points out for us, he is a warrior. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. God is the one who fought for Israel. And this has been really crucial for the history of Israel to understand. It wasn't about um, their achievements or their accomplishments or their influence in Egypt that got them out of there. It It was God at work saving his people. And uh, this is kind of like Pretty crucial to, to know, God was the warrior. He was the one who won the battle against the Egyptians and the gods of Egypt. And God fights for us too. He fights for us too. Um, he does battle for us against the forces of darkness. He's won a deliverance for us uh, over evil and uh, over sin and the power of sin. And God will always do battle for us. And here's the amazing thing that we forget sometimes because, you know, we get focused on today and the issues I face today and how big the problems I have today. We have the book of Revelation. We know who wins in the end. We, we know what God is doing and what he will do. And whose side do you want to be on, by the way? And so, you know, sometimes we just uh, get focused on our daily circumstances and we sort of, oh, sort of give up and we sort of go with the flow and we're sort of moving against God instead of moving with God. God is our warrior. Verses 4 through 10, he is majestic in power. And so Moses reminds us in verse 4 through 10, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them and sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Moses saw this. The people saw this. 
Um, the book of Exodus is for us. We think, we look at, well, it's just another book. It's a nice story. No, the book of Exodus for us. God revealed himself uh, through his, uh, to his people in the Old Testament through scriptures. And this book is for us. This story is for us. So that we can know God. And he's not going to do the Exodus again. He wants us to know him personally. He wants us to know how he thinks, how he operates, how patient he is, the power he has. He's done this very carefully, and he wants us to know that he's majestic in power. Do you think that's true? Is the God you have majestic in power? Moses continues, your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You know, God defeated all those who opposed him. That was very clear. And God wants us to know God will defeat all of those who oppose him in the future. Moses, continue. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. This was righteous anger. It It was a judgment. It was justice from God. But the blast of your nostrils. And and here uh, Moses uses something that's pretty common in uh, Scripture, an anthropomorphism, where uh, God is given like human qualities, like he has a nose, blast of your nostrils. And it's just speaking of uh, that wind that uh, separated the seas. The waters piled up, the surging waters stood up like a wall, and the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 9, the enemy boasted. This was the Egyptian mindset going into this as they were fighting God. Um, I will pursue. I will overtake them. The Egyptians thought they were going to overtake the Hebrew people. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. They were extremely confident as they trailed God's people into the sea. Another anthropomorphism, verse 16. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. And this was God's action. They sank like lead in the mighty waters, and they were done. Verses 11 and 12. He is totally, God is totally unique above all gods. This is what we learn about the person of God. Worship is about responding to God and who he is. And this is what we learn. He is totally unique above all gods, verses 11 and 12. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Answer, no one, no one, no one. He's gone against the gods of Egypt, one after one, and another, and another, and another. And they, they can do nothing in his presence. Who is like you, Moses says, no one. Majestic in holiness, set apart in majestic holiness. Awesome in glory. And the Israelites got to see this firsthand over and over and over again. God's power revealed. Working wonders. God was protecting Israel. That was miraculous. God was judging Egypt. That was miraculous. It was God's power. Moses' staff swallowing up the magicians, the Egyptian magician staff. Remember, Moses' staff turned to a snake. Well, we can do this. We can do a miracle. They turned their staffs to a snake, and there was a large number of them. And Moses' staff, God's staff, swallowed them all. No big deal. 
And yes, it was supernatural. Yes, there was real war going on, a spiritual war going on here, the forces of darkness. I think they were powerfully demonic in Egypt. Then there was the uh, plague of the water turning to blood and the plague of the frogs covering the land and the plague of the gnats and the plague of the flies and the plague on the livestock and the plague of boils on the Egyptians and um, the plague of hail on the Egyptians and the plague of locusts and the plague of darkness and the death of the firstborn in all of the e Egypt all the time God protected his people. And that was very miraculous. It's very clear that God was doing this. Verse 12, you stretch out your hand and the earth swallows your enemies. And so there's been, in the first 12 verses, there's been this focus in this worship song on how God has delivered them, how God delivered them out of Egypt. Now there's going to be a switch in the focus in verse 13. It says, he, his unfail, he is unfailing in his love as he leads his people. He is unfailing in his love. Um... The switch is there's going to be a focus now on the future. There's going to be a focus on God leading his people and what's going to happen. He uses the word unfailing love, which is an important uh, Hebrew word. It's chesed. Can you say that? You've got you to cough it up. And it means loyal love. It's a, it's a sacrificial. I just want to see if you're awake. It's sacrificial love, it's a merciful love, it's a gracious love, it's all of those things. It's the word for love in the Old Testament. It's the word for God's love. They didn't deserve his love, and we don't either. God led Israel, even at times when they didn't like it. Um, he had their good in mind, and they didn't always understand, and they didn't always appreciate what God was doing. Uh, he took them right up against the sea, and they had their backs, and they couldn't escape, and they thought, this was stupid. We're sorry we're here, and God had a plan, and God delivered them. Verses 14 through 16, he has an awe-inspiring reputation. Look at 14. The nations will hear and tremble. God is leading them. As God leads them, the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia, the Philistines. This would be the people on the southwest of the promised land, the land that God promised, the land they're going to, the land that God will give them. This group of people will hear, and they will be... Uh, Anguish will grip this people. Verse 15, the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Edom was on the southeast of the promised land. And God's people will go through their territory as they approach the promised land before they cross the Jordan River. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. Moab was just north of Edom. That was the next group of people that Israel would, that would walk through their land before they went into the promised land. And then the people of Canaan will melt away. These were the people who lived in the promised land. And they will be conquered or displaced as Israel comes into the conquered land. Uh, verse 16, terror and dread will fall on, the, fall on them by the power of your arm. Another anthropomorphism. They will... Uh, be still as a stone until your people pass by. Your people are going to come through. They're going to walk through and people are going to cow away from them in fear until uh, the people you bought, they've been redeemed. 
until the people you bought pass by. This was a prophecy that demonstrated the impact that God's reputation will have as, it goes, as God leads them and as it goes before his people, before they even get there. Now, let me show you a couple of fulfillments of this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. This is like 39 years later after this song and after God delivers them out of Egypt. This very day, God says through Moses, and, he, and this is, he's telling the people what's coming within this year. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under the heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And all this is, is just the truth being told about who God is and what he does and his power. And uh, people who don't like God respond in this way, in fear. That's how they did. Um, This is the warning God gives. The next passage is Joshua chapter 2. And this is a story of Rahab as God sent two messengers into Jericho. And Rahab is going to take them into her house and hide them and protect them. And this is what Rahab says to the spies. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So think about this. The reputation of God has gone before all of the two and a half million Israelites on the road. And the people in Jericho know about this. And this this is a long way from the desert, by the way. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Next slide. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. They have learned a lot about the truth. They didn't know about the true and living God until he started to move out of Egypt. And then God had people's attention. And then uh, we'll do one more. Joshua 5. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. One more example of God's reputation preceding him. And this is exactly what he said would happen. And it's all about who he is, his honor and glory preceding him. Verse 17, what else do we know about God? He keeps his promises. He says, uh, Moses says, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. God is a covenant-keeping God. God made a promise to Abraham that he would give them a land to possess. And uh, he is faithful in his promise. God promised to bring his people into a land flowing with milk and honey, and they are in that process right now and getting there. It's not going to be easy, and they are not quick learners. really helps to be a quick learner here with God. Um, Most of us are not quick learners, by the way. Um. So we can count on God keeping his promises. What's the reference here? 
It's a city where God will dwell in his sanctuary. And ultimately, I believe this is going to be Jerusalem that the reference is to. You made your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. Verse 18, uh, he is the eternal sovereign Lord. Uh, It's easy to say that. It's easy, oh yeah, he is the eternal sovereign. Yeah, I believe that. What does it mean? Um, He's the one, he, he reigns, he's in charge, he's in control. And you know what? He's still in charge today and he's still reigning today as Lord and as King. Uh, his, his reign is eternal, and he is now working out his plan and his purposes right now. And our, some, sometimes we, like, we don't like the way God is writing his plan, and we would like just to take over and take the pen from his hand and write our own story, because we would like different results. But God is sovereign, and he's in charge, and he's in control, and he's working out his purposes for his glory and it's in his timing. We come to the last section, uh, number four on your outline, verses 19 through 21. Worship is an active response to God, not passive. We've already seen this with our definition, but here's another way to look at it. And we see Miriam responded to God's salvation, verses 19 through 21. So we're going to introduce to Miriam. Miriam is Moses' sister, That's not like been super clear. And Miriam is the one who, if you remember when Miriam's mother put baby Moses into the baby ark and went into the Nile, well, Miriam followed the ark and watched Pharaoh's daughter retrieve the ark. Miriam is back in the story. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, this is a repeat of the idea of the story already. The Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. And see how many times they recount the acts of God and the works of God? You know, it's kind of important for us to talk about the death of Jesus for us. His great salvation for us. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, who was also Moses' sister. And now we learn that she's a prophetess. We didn't know that before. We don't know a lot about Miriam. She's a spokesman for God. We have male and female, prophet, prophetess. Moses will be called the prophet. And uh, she's a spokesman for God. And she took a timbrel in her hand, a tambourine-like instrument, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them. She is a worship leader. And this may be antiphonal singing where Moses and the congregation are singing. And Miriam is leading the women now with the women in response. Moses sings one part and Miriam responds with the women in another part. And just some quick observations here. It was active. The response was active. It was a response to God's salvation. It included tambourines, dancing, and singing. It's pretty joyful. Um, we're, instruments are a great thing to use in, in a worship. And by the way, there aren't right instruments of worship and wrong instruments of worship. It's about honoring God. 
It was about exalting God. It was worship. And uh, so Miriam responded to God's salvation in an active way. We respond to God's salvation by having an active response to God. And here are some ways. When we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, Romans 12:1, that is worship. It's an active response to God. It's a choice on your part. Romans 12:1 comes after 11 chapters of theology about the meaning and significance of the death of Christ. Salvation. Romans 12:1 is response. Offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Think about that. It requires thinking. Do I want to do this? Can I do this? What will it cost me? What will I have to do if I do this? What does it mean if I offer my life, everything, my heart, my mind, my body, my resources, my stuff, I offer everything to God? What does that mean? It's your choice. It's worship. Um, Another is offering thanks to God. Thanksgiving, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This recognizes God's goodness, God's provision, uh, that God gives us resources. It's acknowledging God all through the day. When you thank God, it is worship. If you sit down at lunchtime today and you thank God for what he's provided for you, and I recommend you consider doing that, it's worship. You thank God anytime he's done something. When you get your paycheck, I hope you thank God because it's not about you. God could take it away anytime he wanted. Thank God. It's, it's recognized, it's dependence on him. It's, he's the source of our life, our breath, our income, our stuff. He's the, our source. And it's thank you. It's worship. Uh, offering praise as the fruit of our lips. Hebrews 13, 15. Uh, when we give praise to God, it can be just our words. It can be through singing. When we uh, say how great God is, when we praise God for something he did for us, when we praise God for answering prayers for us, it's worship. It's the fruit of our lips. Uh, offering our money to God, Philippians 4.18. People get nervous about this one. When you give to God with the right attitude, it is pleasing to God. Philippians 4.19, it is an act of worship. That's one of the reasons we call the offering a worship in giving, a time for worship in giving. The Apostle Paul gave those instructions in 1 Corinthians 16.1. And lastly, the last one I want to focus this on is offering our obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And love being the, the greatest commandment to love God. And Jesus said, if you love me, I think he might be God too. He said, keep my commandments, obey my commands. Uh, so uh, our obedience is a sacrifice well-pleasing to God. Worship as a lifetime is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Christ. Worship is about honoring God. When you pray, you worship God because you're depending on God. He's greater than you. 
When you speak kindly, you honor God because you're recognizing uh, his will and responding in obedience. When you forgive, you honor God. And even when you forgive is an act of worship. When you serve one another, you honor God. And that's a worshipful response. When you share the good news with another person, you honor God. Um, I'm going to end this morning with uh, this, this thought. And uh, some of you know a uh, Christian author and uh, pastor of Moody Church, Erwin Lutzer, said this, If we haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter how well we do anything else. Let that soak in. If we haven't learned to be worshipers, it doesn't really matter how well we do anything else. That's a good way to place a value on life. When we share in communion, we worship. We take the time to respond to God. We in the Old Testament, in the song of the salvation song of Moses, he recounted the work of God, God's deliverance out of Egypt. And then they responded with worship. When we recount the death of Jesus, we remember and we can respond in worship. And when we share communion, we do that. We take the bread. And the bread is a symbol and reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ that was nailed to the cross for us. When we take the cup, it's a symbol. It reminds us of the blood of Jesus. We remember God's salvation, God's deliverance for us, and we make it personal. It's not about going through the motions. Don't go through the motions. You think about what God has done for you. Maybe you just need to make a list of your sins in your mind and let them just Tick off as fast as they can go. Are you thankful God has forgiven you? Thanking God for what he's done is worship. And we're going to take time to remember that today. And we're going to hold in our hand a piece of bread. And we're going to eat it. And we're going to hold in our hand a cup. And that's to cause us to think and reflect and to keep the cross central. So I'd like to pray. And uh, as I do, those who are going to pair, com, uh, prepare communion, not repair, prepare, uh, come and uh, serve us. Father, we thank you this morning for the salvation song in Exodus and the focus on worship. Thank you for what we can learn about you and learn about worship and be reminded today. God, most of all today, we are reminded of the gift you've given us when you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you loved us so much that you did not leave us in our sins and that we do not have to face eternal destruction. But by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, you offer forgiveness and eternal life. And we just say thank you. And this morning we, um, we take the bread and remember Jesus' body 
the, the suffering that he went through for us, the beating that he endured, the crown of thorns, the nails, and the nail holes on the cross. We remember what he did, and we say thank you. Thank you for the bread. As we think about Jesus' sacrifice, we remember the blood that was shed. And we know that his blood was somehow a payment for our sin. And Jesus was our substitute. We deserved the death, and he took our death so that we could have life. We're reminded of the blood that was shed at the cross. We're reminded that he gave his entire life for us, and we say thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. May we walk humbly with you. May we seek to follow Jesus and live lives that honor you with the way we speak, the way we think, the way we behave. May we represent you well to our worlds. May we shine brightly as lights for Jesus' sake. Thank you for the bread and thank you for the cup. Amen.